0: Welcome, Welcome to, to another episode of, episode of Pit Lane, Lane Parlay. Two, Welcome to a special episode of Pit Lane Parlay. I am your host, Mike Jokum. Mark Dill from First Super Speedway joins me today. Mark, thank you for joining. Happy New Year. How's everything going?
1: Going pretty well, all things considered. I, I'm blessed during this uh Tough situation with good family and all that. And I feel forever some of the people out there that are sick or alone. And it's just it's a sad time, but me personally, I'm like I say, I'm blessed.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm glad we are through the end of 2020 and hopefully on to a much more healthy and, and better 2021. With that being said, you run first super speedway, one of my favorite posts every morning i see that pops up on the pit lane parlay facebook pages is, is what you're sharing so tell us a little bit about it how you got started with it and we'll we'll see where it takes us
1: well actually uh not to be smart like i probably got started with it not long after i was born <laughs> because i just uh i just had this gene coming up in indianapolis uh being born there and and Uh, living there through college, uh, I uh, naturally was exposed to the Speedway and every year, every May, the Indy 500, it was the circus coming to town. Back then it was May 1 and much ceremony, getting on the track, uh, first practice and so forth. So it was all month long and it was intense and I couldn't resist it. it. So I just got fascinated with it and also got fascinated with the history and there's something in my soul, I don't know what it is, but I've always been felt some kind of a connection to the turn of the 20th century. And I, My grandparents were born around that time. I mean, who knows, maybe I lived there in a previous life, but I, I just was fascinated with it. Teddy Roosevelt's one of my favorite presidents. It, it just such a dynamic era. And there's many parallels to what's going on today when you talk about the breakthroughs in technology, uh, information technology. Uh, For example, at the first Indy 500, there were 32 telegraph operators in what they called the judges stand where the pagoda is today. And they were tapping out updates on the race throughout the day. And uh, so you had same day newspaper coverage in Los Angeles. I mean, it was a big deal and that spirit certainly permeated Indianapolis. People that didn't pay attention to the sport the rest of the year, they they were totally into it. But that was my thing. And I wanted to write a book about it uh, when I was 11 years old. And uh, I, uh, it took me a long time, but I, uh, I wasn't up for it then. And I realized what a project it was. and. So anyway, I'm rambling, but that's that's sort of the background on that.
0: Oh, I love it. So back in back in the first Indy 500 everybody was, you know, telegraphing the the updates. When when did covering racing become a I don't want to say standard thing, but a you know, it was your job to travel around and follow racing. I guess at some point back then it had to go from, okay, we're gonna telegraph this to let's telegraph more than just this race.
1: Yeah, I mean, it started almost from the get-go. And in fact, my book opens with uh, taking taking you back to 1902 uh, near Detroit at the Grosse Pointe uh, horse track. And Barney Oldfield drove his first race and he also happened to win it and he was in, uh, some people will argue about this point, but I I feel like the car he's in was the first purpose-built car by Henry Ford. And uh, Oldfield went from obscurity to a national sensation overnight in 1902, because he beat someone, uh, Alexander Winton, who was widely regarded as the the guru, the champion of American auto racing, Winton Motor Carriage Company in Cleveland. And <clears throat> he beat uh, Winton, And uh, everybody was like, well, who is this kid? And um, then he started barnstorming and he was setting records. And uh, he actually went and ended up hiring him later. And uh, so really from the beginning, uh, uh, it it and, and and that was the nexus with other technologies of the day i mean the world and america were becoming electrified and the telegraph systems were uh, getting increasingly pervasive so news traveled at 186,000 miles per hour i mean uh it was, it was revolutionary. And that's why I draw some analogies between what was going on then and what was going on today. But one, one final thought on that, yeah. there were uh, a host of trade publications that popped up. Uh, one of the more amusing names, but it was very well uh, considered in the time was uh, an industry publication called The Horseless Age. And, uh, but then there was also the automobile, there was motor age, there was the motor um, and several others. And you can Google these things on, uh, you know, on the web and, and Google has entire volumes of these publications digitized and ready for download for free and really just sinking into those, you you, it paints the picture for you just how enthralled um, the country and the developed world was about this industrial revolution. And there was no better example of it than the automobile.
0: So I'll dive right into the question then. You're talking about you know kind of the beginnings of everything. So everybody pretty much, well, I should say most of the people listening here should know you know the beginnings of the indianapolis motor speedway and the beginnings of indycar what are a handful of things that maybe most people kind of overlook when they're you know that that's not on wikipedia and and uh you know not not generally available knowledge about that you know 1907 1909 timeframe.
1: Yeah, I well, I I think of some of the characters, and if you do Google searches, you can uncover some information on them. Mm-hmm. But um, I I think of like Tom Cooper, who is a uh, pretty strong character in my book. He was he was Barney's uh, buddy, and those guys piled around together. They raced together. They they did all kinds of things uh, that. Uh, some would consider unseemly, but they were young men and they pressed the envelope in every aspect of life. And so Tom Cooper, who was the uh, America's uh, bicycle racing champion in, in 1998, out on the Newbie Oval, which is Art Newbie one of the founders of the Speedway had this velodrome. I think it was on the east side of Indianapolis and uh, Cooper won the big championship there. And bicycle racing was such a big deal back then. And if you really look at what um, the technology, a lot, you know, the innovations, some of them were derived from bicycles. I mean, the chain drive was more popular than the drive shaft in the earliest automobiles. And um, I also think of a guy by the name of John Walter Christie, and he was a character. He was born at the end of the civil war. So by the time the era that I'm writing about rolls around he's, you know, he's an older guy but he's out there racing. And he just, he was like a mad professor and he really was the, on the bleeding edge as they say of uh, innovations like front wheel drive. So the front wheel drive Christie is iconic to the racing nerds of the of racing history nerds of the world so um there were just a variety of these people that popped up i i think the thing that's interesting and stop me if i'm going on and on
0: it's quite uh, okay
1: you had this cultural war i mean the subtitle of my book is uh, uh the battle for the soul of american auto racing and it's really analogous to what, what what we see in our country today with the red state versus the blue state. And in the Northeast, there were people that were regarded as elites and they were, they were extremely wealthy. Uh, Fifth Avenue guys like the Vanderbilts, William K Vanderbilt Jr. who started the first, uh, America is probably the, the first Uh, major road race, but in a way, the first major auto race, something that starts to look like what we have today. He started that in 1904. And uh, so there's this tension between people of in his uh, social circle and what you found out west, if you will, and out west to these guys was Places like Indiana and Michigan and Ohio, they, they even use a derisive term westerners. And when they said you were a westerner, they were essentially saying you were a hick and that you didn't understand proper uh society, societal norms, you didn't understand proper motor racing, and uh, but. Barney and, uh, and Carl Fisher, Carl is the other one that I write about a great deal. And you know, it's the books really told alternating between their points of view. And uh, they just had a whole different mindset about, it. they really thought of racing as a business. And uh, the Vanderbilt and people of his ilk uh, were inherited their wealth and were proper gentlemen. And it was a gentleman's sport. And it was kind of crass to think about how do you make money at it? So uh, I, again, I'm rambling, but there's so many dynamics and I, I enjoy the parallels between, you know, things that happen today um, and what happened then. There, you, you talk about CART and IRL, there was a similar um, battle between racing organizations, the AAA, and then another outfit called the Automobile Club of America. And they got into a nasty row that lasted well over a year. And the Vanderbilt Cup was even canceled uh, in 1907 as a result of that. So, um, you know, you, you, you look at it and you start reading it. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, uh, you can easily see that uh, like nothing's new under the sun as they say
0: so i have a handful of questions and i have no idea which one i want to ask next because i am fascinated by all of this so i am just going to jump into kind of a a tie-in from 1916 to this past year with the harvest grand prix obviously we had the harvest classic back in 1916 so I know everybody knows the Harvest Classic existed in, in the mid-1900s, right before World War I and, and the Speedway was was closed for a handful of years. But what was the Harvest Classic back then?
1: In 1916, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. My book doesn't quite go that far, but my website, firstsuperspeedway.com, certainly does. And you can find a, a great deal of information on the harvest classic there but uh you're right it was uh fisher was uh, you know he paid attention and he was a man of vision and he could see that there was the potential for uh disruption in the uh indianapolis 500 and so uh they decided to squeeze in a race a second race in 1916 and they called it the harvest classic because it It took place, I think it was on September 9th. Um, And uh, it was a great day for another character who who does appear in my book, uh, Johnny Aiken. And Aiken ended up being the winningest driver in the history of the Indianapolis 500. I think he has something like 18 race wins, um, none being the 500. But he did manage two Indy 500 winners. Uh, in 1913 and in 1914 and he swept they had three events that weekend and he swept all three and um, but it was not well attended it was in competition with the Indiana State Fair which is was and still is deeply embedded in Hoosier culture and so they really struggled to get a a crowd um, and uh, it was never repeated. And of course you had the disruption of the war and it wasn't until 1919 that you saw racing again in at the Speedway. Okay, round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club.
0: Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. forward prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming up on Five Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. I like it. I always like that Aiken story because nobody really talks about him too much outside of. Well, I, I I didn't know the name at all until last year when when you when you posted the when you posted some information about him. So I'm going to go with one more indie specific related question before I ask a road rate uh, road racing question. Obviously, everybody knows Ray Haroon and and. Johnny Aiken and Barney Oldfield. Are there any other guys from, from you know, the first, let's say first 10 Indy 500s that don't get the level of coverage or respect that they do simply because it was at this point 105, 110 years ago?
1: Right. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book too. Yeah. There's so many you know, so many amazing people that, I just hate the fact that uh, in all aspects of history that people are forgotten. I, I just pulling it right out of the top of my head, there's an interesting guy. He wasn't extremely successful, but he was respected, uh, a race driver. His name's Herb Lytle. And Herb Lytle has the distinction, and nobody but me, as near as I can tell, ever talks about this. But Herb Lytle has the distinction as being the only man to race in the inaugural Vanderbilt Cup, which was a big, big race then in 1904, and the inaugural Indy 500 in 1911. So he raced in one Indy 500, uh, and that was the first one. And uh, he, he had a kind of a checkered career and a lot of struggles, nearly died of a concussion at, at Riverhead outside of Long Beach. Um, and back then there was no brain surgery. It was just, we'll see if you wake up and if you do great, and if you don't, then that's, you know, that happened. And uh, he also had, and it's again a, a, a sign of the times, he, he contracted typhoid fever and uh, really almost died from that and so i i honestly can't recall him ever winning a race but he was a factor and if you dig into some of the motor journals of the day his name pops up pretty uh, frequently he he raced uh, maybe i'm jumping ahead to road racing but he <laughs> he also was one of the few americans who raced in the gordon james gordon bennett cup which was actually the world's biggest race at the turn of the century. And it was only usurped by the French Grand Prix in 1906. So I, I think it was 19, oh, yeah, 1905, that uh, Lytle uh, raced in the uh, Bennett Cup and he was uh, his factory team was Pope Toledo. And uh, accompanying him on that journey was Carl Fisher
0: love it. So, you mentioned it. I'm going to segue right in here. The Vanderbilt Cup. I have a vague idea of what it is because I've 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 read your your work, but what was the Vanderbilt Cup? How long was it around and uh yeah, I'll just leave it at that.
1: Okay. Well, the Vanderbilt Cup again was the brainchild of William K Vanderbilt Jr. Uh, started in 1904, and uh, the last of um, the last of, as they called him, Willie Kay's races, were, was in 1906, 1916, and um, he, he it was interrupted, as I said, by the by the uh, AAA, aca Civil War in 1907. Uh, it was a road race, and road racing. You know, back then, it, 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 this race actually looked like the European races, and Vanderbilt was was a pretty, you know, skilled race driver. He, uh, he, he took it very seriously. At one point, he yielded the world land speed record. He, he raced in European road races, and he saw how they did things, and decided that America needed such a race, and that American manufacturers weren't aware of how they were being outclassed by European manufacturers. And so he wanted to cast a spotlight on that. And uh, that's how that was born. And it, as I say, it went up to 1916. There were a lot of struggles. And uh, the Long Island community originally was thrilled with it because it brought in a lot of commerce. Uh, But after some deaths, um, if you've seen rally racing even today and in recent years, uh, people just line the course. I mean, it's crazy. And these cars are flying by at the brink of control and people are just standing there like they're the retaining wall and uh, accidents happen. And so uh, officials in Long Island were so appalled so road racing in America turned to more remote places and trying to avoid the crowds, which is kind of funny. Uh, but again, it was the mentality of the time that it was less about sanctioning profitable races and more about uh, showcasing equipment and allowing gentlemen operators to, to compete. So they left uh, Long Beach or Long Beach, sorry, Long Island in uh, 1910, and uh, then from 1911 through 1916, they were kind of a, a road show. They they were in Savannah, Georgia, and they were in Milwaukee, and they were in the Bay Area out in in uh, California. You know, so they kind of moved around, but um, as it shifted more to a professional environment, um, the, uh, Willie Kay really became disenchanted yeah. and decided he had done what he had set out to do. And so it stopped in 1916. There, there have been some revivals in 1936 and 1937, again, back at uh, um, Rhode Island, uh, I'm sorry, Long Island, um, there was a road course that, um, was purpose-built, and of all things, it, it was a cinder track, and, um, they raced there, as I say, those two years, and again, the Europeans came over and just cleaned the American clock, uh, first it was Tatsio Nuvolari in an Alfa Romeo, and then the next year, the, uh, the silver arrows that most people in racing are familiar with showed up with the Mercedes and auto union. So, um, but that revival William K Vanderbilt Jr had nothing to do with, uh, George Vanderbilt was his cousin. Um, maybe cousin once removed and he had the same last name. And so they were the promoters, uh, latched onto that. And, uh, it was an interesting footnote in history but again it it didn't and we were you know the war was coming on and uh and so european racing kind of shut down before american racing shut down and um so it it, it led a short life and again i'm rambling so i hope that was useful
0: yeah no it uh, was so I'll, I'll transition then kind of into my last topic which i alluded to in early road racing which obviously kind of was as you you mentioned just a couple minutes ago sort of like rally racing because it wasn't a a a track a purpose built track like we typically see today so how did how did people get started in in these early you know road racing type things what was it like back then and how did they go from, okay, let's just you know, race down the roads of, of Long Island to maybe we should have an actual racetrack?
1: Yeah, well, and that's kind of highlighted in my book. I mean, it, it, the events go from 1902 to 1910 um, and ends uh, with the first race weekend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway after it was paved with brick. And it was sort of this crowning moment in, in how auto racing was transformed. Um, it started, as you say, on public roads. And, and if you can imagine being at those things, um, these public road courses were like 25 to 30 miles long. And the way they started them was like a rally. You, um, you didn't start You know, certainly wasn't a rolling start. It it wasn't even a standing start like you see in Formula One. It was, um, they were released at intervals. And the idea was to keep them from wrecking into each other. Right. Um, And uh, But it was like a, a rally race. So if you can imagine you're sitting there and you're waiting for a car to come around and the cars back then were given to mechanical failure so the crowd the the field would thin out i think the first vanderbilt cup had 19 cars which is okay yeah. but uh you know you get to about lap four or something and you, you you know you've got half that and so you're sitting there and you're waiting for these cars that are averaging laps of around 50 miles per hour coming Coming by, well, you can imagine you could, you know, you could play a card game, or uh, you know, certainly have your lunch <laughs> before you see another car. So, but those first Vanderbilt Cups attracted massive crowds, uh, very comparable, and even probably in excess of the Indianapolis Five Hundred today. But then again, there wasn't that much competition for sports entertainment and they didn't have to pay. They only had one grandstand where they they charged for the seats and the boxes uh, and that accommodated around 5,000 people. So the rest of these people, it was just like festival seating at a concert. They just scrambled and got to the best vantage point they could find and it, it was a freebie. But they also purchased a lot of stuff while they were there and so the local economy benefited uh, and the local economy was agrarian. And so a lot of these farmers would set up stands where they had um, fresh produce and, and prepared food like sandwiches and whatever. Um, so it, it, that was sort of the atmosphere of the racing. And, the, and like I say, the racers, um, they were, For the most part, they were gentlemen, what they call gentlemen operators. They're just extremely wealthy people. The only people that could afford the car. So certainly among the private entrants. And then you had some factory teams. Um, Like Panhard won the first uh, Vanderbilt cup. And they had an interesting driver by the name of George Heath. And he makes a brief appearance in my book. He was an an expatriate living in, I think it was in Paris, but certainly in France. And he was their star driver for a couple of years and uh, won the, uh, and he was not a young man at the time. He was early forties when he won that race. And uh, so you had a mix. I mean, there was some professionalism among the, the profile of a guy like Heath but um, it, was, it was mostly or um, gentlemen operators.
0: Right, makes sense to me. Fascinating stuff, sir. And I think we'll have to do at least one more of these throughout the, the off season here as we start up 2021, but we will, we will wrap it up for today. And I, I 100% appreciate all of your time and all of your knowledge. Everybody can go to firstsuperspeedway.com for pretty much everything Mark mentioned. I'm imagining I'm on the website right now, but you can get, you, people can get your book on there as well.
1: Not really. Um, okay. I'm you, I asked. Uh, there's another website, an author's website. As I got into the business of publishing a book, yeah. I realized it was best practice. That is markgdill.com um you can go there you can request an autograph copy but it's also available at amazon and barnes and noble and target and i was very pleased to see blackwell's in england which is a big book yeah. retailer in england picked it up so um you know all the all the uh typical channels you can go there and just order it
0: awesome well i will make sure to put both of those links in the show notes and on social media this week when when this comes out and share it with you. So thank you very much for, for all your knowledge and look forward to talking again soon.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. plus